You're listening to Docs Outside the Box, episode 11. Run that intro. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry, you're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Every time I hear that intro, I can't lie, I can't front. I love that intro. It gets me so hyped. So let me know what you think about that intro. Hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, email. Don't care. Just get in touch with me. Let me know what your thoughts are on that. Um, but I am your host, Dr. Nidarko, and I got another great one for you. Another great episode of Docs Outside the Box. I'm going to do things a little bit different this time. It's going to be a little bit of a different format. But before I get to the session at hand, got to let you know how things are on my end. Give you some quick housekeeping things on the Darko household. So look, like I said, let me know what you think about the intro. I really am interested to know how it makes you feel. But like I said, it, it gets me really hyped. Send me some feedback on Twitter, Facebook, email, what have you. And uh, keep the feedback coming. I love it. You guys have been hitting me up on iTunes, Google Play. Don't forget I'm on Stitcher. And the reason why I press those formats, or at least press hitting me with reviews, giving me stars on on iTunes particularly, is the more reviews that I get, the more stars that I get, it helps the show to become more visible. And from the feedback that I'm getting from you, you guys like the show, but if you want more people to to watch the show, if you want more people to see and discover the show, then just please just take 30 seconds. All right, it's longer than that. Take a minute, <laughs> a minute and a half. Just please go on iTunes. It doesn't take too long, but the effects afterwards are so much you know, afterwards, it helps the show to become much more visible. We, The show will continue to rise on the news and noteworthy section of iTunes. And the same thing with Google Play as well as with Stitcher. So as always, I'm going to take an opportunity to read some of the reviews on iTunes, which I'm, I'm pretty feeling. I'm feeling a lot of them actually this, this week. So I'm going to read the one from One Day MD. Thank you very much. It says, this podcast will change your outlook on the practice of medicine. That's what's up. I believe there is something for everyone in this podcast, from pre-med student to practicing physician. Personally, I'm a pre-med and I already have a million ideas swirling around in my head as when I am a physician one day. I'd like to practice outside the box. Keep up the good work. Well, one day, MD, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Keep listening, subscribe, share. The next review, five stars also, is from M. Holman. That's M. Holman and says one of the best or one of the best podcasts I'm talking about. I am so happy that I found this podcast when I did. I'm a fourth year med student and this podcast has been a constant source of motivation and inspiration. I'm always excited for a new episode. Each and every podcast offers something so unique. I feel like I'll be a much better physician going forward and have gotten amazing ideas for what I want my future to look like. Thank you so much, Dr. Darko, for this podcast. Please keep up the amazing work. That's what I'm talking about, M. Holman. Thank you so much. I feel that. I love it. Keep it coming, everyone. I am so grateful for the feedback that you guys are giving me from med students to attendings to people who are not even in medicine. I love it. Keep the feedback coming. One thing that I want to do real quick also is, you know, look, I'm a firm believer that things happen for a reason. I'm a firm, firm believer that people are in your life for a reason. So I just want to take a quick moment just to say how grateful I am to Dr. Dreon Birch, also known as Dr. Dre, America's OB. You can learn more about him on episode three of Docs Outside the Box. He launched his medical moguls course, which is a seven day mini course on how to become a medical mogul. Okay. Um, if you go to his website, it's medicalmogulcourse.com and it's a seven day mini course where you, you learn how to become a medical mogul and create a lifestyle of freedom. And Dr. Dre teaches that course. So make sure you go and you give him some love, go check out that course. All right. Also we come back, I'm trying to get back on my health kick. I'm trying to get back into shape and 
Anybody who knows me knows that I just don't back down from challenges. My mom ain't raised no punk. And for some reason, sometimes that, you know, not wanting to back down, not stepping down from challenges, you know, can get me in trouble. So about a month ago, some of my college friends uh, challenged me to basically see if we can all together as a group break two minutes into 800 literally in the next six months. So the last time I ran, it's been a while. And when I say a while, it's been a long time. It's been at least 10 years since I've, I've run. But, you know, they challenge me. You know what I'm saying? They hold me, you know, so I, I can't back down, you know. So <laughs> so literally, I am getting into shape. I am on T25. I'm trying to get my muscles and my ligaments, you know, trying to get the icy hot ready and stuff. And I started jogging and getting myself ready to really get some base training ready because those who know the 800 is a mix of sprinting and distance. So I'm going to keep you guys updated on how my training is going. I am finishing week four of T25 and um, I'm going to start adding some mileage just to kind of get my muscles and my legs kind of used to things so that I don't pull a hamstring or an Achilles or anything like that. So I'll keep you updated with that. And um, actually, as of this week, my wife and I, we decided to do something that's really outside the box. It's going to be scary at first for us, but you know what? We're going to stick with it. And um, look, I can't give you details now, but please pay attention. Keep following. Eventually, in the near future, I will give you all the information that you need to know so you can know what I'm doing. But listen, if you are doing something that right now is outside the box, I am so interested to know. Hit me on Twitter at DocsOTB with the hashtag, I'm not just a doc. The next guest on this show is someone that I guess you could consider an old head. It's Katie Brewer, our fee only, our favorite fee only financial planner advisor from Your Richest Life. And she was episode four. And based off of the downloads, she was a favorite of yours also. And after that episode, so many people have sent me feedback, has sent me questions either through text, email, Twitter on various questions that. I can answer, but you know what? I said, let me see if Katie is available to answer these questions and she was open to it. So what I did is I took about like the top three or four questions that everybody was asking and decided decided to allow her to answer them. So without further ado, let's get on with the session. Let me know what you think about this session. This is a little bit different. So let's get on with the show. Welcome back to another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I am your host, Dr. Nee Darko, and we're going to do things a little different on this episode. This time, we're going to do a Q&A with our friend, Katie Brewer from Your Richest Life. Katie, are you there? I am. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Everybody who has listened to episode four, she was the star of episode four, where we got financial education for Docs 101. Katie dropped some knowledge on personal finance, as well as financial independence for doctors. And uh, she's been a hit. And I've been getting so many different messages about you and how great you did and questions about you. Um, I contacted you and wanted to know if we can do a show where we're just answering some questions. Yeah. You know, I love dropping knowledge all over the place. Just dropping. Dropping knowledge, (laughs) dropping gems, dropping dimes (laughs) in so many different ways we (laughs) can talk about it. So Um, Once again, before we get started, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, So I'm a certified financial planner. Um, I started my own firm, Your Richest Life, uh, about two years ago, mainly because I wanted to be able to work with kind of younger people um, in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And a lot of the financial services industry kind of focuses on products and selling stuff to people. And I didn't want to work in that capacity anymore. So my firm is what's called a fee-only financial planning firm. Um, we work with clients on like a consulting basis. So it's probably a lot more similar to if you were working with a CPA or an attorney versus kind of the traditional financial advisor or financial planner. Now, I see you kind of snuck in the second year. That's a big deal. This is actually the two-year anniversary birthday of your richest life. So give yourself some props for that. It is. I know I've been in the industry for I think like 11 years now. Actually, I might be getting on 12, but we're doing the the two-year anniversary of having my own firm and um, being able to kind of work with who I want to work with. Determining your own hours, making your own uh, schedule. That's got to be great. Yeah, right. (laughs) 
Welcome to the 1099 life. <laughs> yep, exactly. Everybody tells me at some point, like, you know, I'm, I'll be able to have a flexible schedule and just work what I want to work. And I'm, I don't know when that's going to happen, but, uh, but I still love owning my own business. Well, this has been a great year for you, or at least the last two years. I mean, I'm going through your website right now. You've been on a whole host of podcasts, including mine, and um, you've been on NBC News. You've been on so many different um, electronic formats, whether it's podcasts or writing your own blogs. It's just been opportunity after opportunity for you. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I think it's a lot of fun to be able to educate people. And that's part of the reason that I started my own firm in the first place. Like I've I really come from a place where I like to educate people, you know, rather than just say, well, just trust me and just hand everything over in this black box and, you know, it'll all get taken care of. Yeah. And for the, uh, the people who used to follow that advice, including me, check, take a listen to episode four, let you know how bad, how bad of a situation that can get you to when you just trust someone without really knowing what they're all about. Let's start answering some questions. So our first question is from Dr. Obang in Virginia. And his question is, are variable annuities a viable financial product? And if not, what's a better product? All right. So I really like that question about variable annuities being a viable financial product. I feel like a lot of times, um, especially doctors get, I don't, want to say pitched, but yeah, kind of pitched by um, people in the- Come on, Katie, give us the truth. Okay, you know we get it's pitched. pitched or pimped. It's pitched, <laughs> it's pimped from, from the insurance industry. Um, and a lot of those advisors have the same licenses to be able to call themselves financial advisors or financial planners. But at the end of the day, they're representing an insurance company. So with that being said, I don't think variable annuities themselves are bad or evil. But I do think that there is a lot of garbage out there (laughs) and like a few good ones. And normally, if you're being sold a variable annuity, it'll probably fall into the first category versus the second category. Um, Because I feel like annuities are products that should be bought and not sold. And when annuities are sold, they often are ones that are very expensive and have very... What does that mean? I, I've read that so many different times and I kind of understand the concept, but what does it mean when a product is sold, not bought? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of the same deal with if you were buying a car, if you go online and you do some research and you test drive and you ask friends what they've had and what they liked about it, and you look back at what you've owned, you know, you kind of do your research and then you go and you purchase your car. So, you're essentially... that's where you're buying a car as opposed to you're driving down the highway one day and you see that Cadillac is having a sale and you pull in thinking, well, I'll just check it out. And then by the end of it, you've purchased a car. You have no earthly idea what it, what it is, you know, how it drives, what the track record is, or if you even got a good deal because you just kind of wandered onto a car lot. Oh, I see. It's kind of the same deal. Like if you have somebody that is, pitching you a variable annuity, I'm not saying that it's a bad product, but I'm saying probably at that point, you should go do your homework into figuring out what the underlying um, costs are associated with that annuity. Now, what exactly is a variable annuity or should I be asking more importantly, what's an annuity or tell us, take us, educate us on that. Okay. Yeah. So an annuity is an insurance product that is acts as kind of an umbrella over an account. So um, it would be kind of similar to like a Roth IRA acts as like a tax umbrella over an account. Um, A traditional IRA acts as kind of a tax umbrella over account. So an annuity, you don't really get a deduction for it like you would with an IRA. And it doesn't come out tax-free like it would with a Roth. But while it's in there, you are not paying taxes on any type of gain that it makes. So um, in that aspect, you know, it might make sense for some people if they've maxed out all of their, you know, retirement space, so they're fully contributing to like their 401k and they've put everything that they possibly can into like employer plans or IRAs, it might make sense for them to put some money into an annuity because that is money where they're not going to have to pay taxes on it. Um, as opposed to like a brokerage account, if you just have mutual funds in a brokerage account, those mutual funds usually will be spitting off some sort of dividends and capital gains along the way. 
So every time that that happens, you've got to pay some sort of tax on those dividends or those capital gains. If all of that's under the umbrella of annuity, then you don't have to pay taxes on it while it's in there. So you you would pay taxes when it is time for you to retire or when you take money out. Right, exactly. So like a tax deferred growth model? Yeah. So it's essentially a way to get tax deferral, um, but it's not something where you get a a deduction now or a deduction later as you would with like an IRA or 401k. So uh, do you have any recommendations on how to properly use variable annuities? Is it based off of a certain amount of funds are in there? Uh, or is it based off of how much you're investing on it into it on a monthly basis? What's the best way to use a variable annuity? All right. So to be able to evaluate a variable annuity, you want to look at a couple of things. Um, the first one is the actual charges associated with the annuity itself. Um, so an annuity will usually have what's uh, referred to as M and E, and that stands for mortality and expense fee. Mm. So that's something that's set by the insurance company. And it's part of any life insurance or annuity or any type of insurance product. But um, that essentially covers the risk that, you know, if you take out an annuity and it has a higher death benefit than what you bought it for, that the insurance company isn't going to be completely out of money. So um, you want to look at the M&E charge. A lot of times there are writers on um, an annuity. So those are kind of the bells and whistles. So, if you, so an annuity, an annuity basically is an insurance product then? It is. Exactly. It oh, is an insurance okay. product. Yes. Okay. Um, so you were saying about the riders? Yeah. So a rider can also have a fee on it. So for example, like if you have an annuity and it has um, a guaranteed amount every year. So, you know, say like, okay, well, you either get what it's ri- risen up to or you get 5%. That's probably a rider on the annuity and therefore, there's probably going to be a fee associated with that as well. Okay. So you would want to look at kind of the guts of the variable annuity product, figure out um, the M&E expenses. And those typically are between like 1% to 2%. Um, and then you want to look at the rider charges. But that only covers like the actual product. That's not covering the underlying investments. Um So with the underlying investments, you want to look at those fees as well. Okay. Um, They invest in sub accounts. So it's very similar to a mutual fund, except it's not traded the same way that a mutual fund is. It's essentially part of a big group of investments within the variable annuity. Um, And the reason you want to look at those is if it has like a low M&E charge, but each sub account has one and a half percent you know, fee associated with it, you're never going to see that fee. It comes out of your return. Mm, okay. So if your return was really 10%, but the uh, variable annuity sub account was one and a half percent, you're really only getting eight and a half percent from that sub account inside the variable annuity. So buyer beware, just be careful of fees. Fees can basically, you know, nickel and dime you away from the returns that you really want. Right, exactly. I mean, I've okay. I've seen some crazy variable annuities where they were all in like two and a half to three and a half percent from M and E charges, writers, and kind of what the cost of the sub accounts were. Okay. Um, you would have to be getting really, really, really good returns as opposed to just a brokerage account with mutual funds in it. So, taking a thirty thousand foot view. In terms of, so the best advice for Dr. Obang, would it be the best thing is to first maximize your tax deferred accounts? So your 401k at work, um, your own IRA accounts, um, and then afterwards try to maximize your brokerage accounts. And then from there, go to a variable annuity if you think you need one. I kind of like for people to maximize their um, work accounts, like their 401k and stuff like that. Um, And then to maybe just strike a balance between, so if you've got, say, like $20,000 per year extra after you've maximized your 401k, then you might want to look at kind of splitting it between a brokerage account, but having it invested into um, mutual funds that are more like tax friendly, and then maybe doing like $10,000 into a low cost variable annuity 
which I would venture to say is less than 5% of the annuities out oh there. Goodness. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, Dr. Obang, I hope you got your answer, uh, your question answered. Um, that was a great answer, actually. I think we all are a lot better for understanding that now because I tr- truly, to this day, now that you've explained it, before this point, I did not know what a variable annuity is. I kind of understood the concept overall that you kind of invest in it last, but the specifics, um, you really help bring some light to that. Yeah, the specifics are boring. They're usually not part of the sales pitch. Hmm. <laughs> And, and the, that's where all the details are at. And that's where I guess most of your, your fees would be eating away at your returns. Right. So buyer beware. Yep. All right. So let's move on to the Massachusetts area. Um, Dr. Landry actually has a two-part question. Is that okay? Yes. All right. So his first question is, I have close to 100000 in federal student loans between 3 and 4%. I know what that feels like. Uh, <laughs> when is it better to invest versus pay off student loans? So I guess this is the age old question of, should you invest or pay off the student loans first? All right. Well, I really like the question on should you invest versus should you pay off student loans? Um, specifically in Dr. Landry's case, he gave us a percentage rate on his student loans, which is always really helpful. Um, Absolutely. Because if your student loans are at 7 to 8%, that's a different animal than if your student loans have been refinanced at some point and they're at three to four percent, which is what his loans are at. Um, so there's never like a really like black and white answer on this question because if you have, say, like a 401k where you get an awesome match and they match you up to like 10 percent, I would say free money first. Always. <laughs> so always get whatever the match is in your retirement plan before you're throwing extra money at your student loans. Um, but then after that, I usually work with people to determine if their student loans are bugging them or if they don't really care about them. So if they can't sleep at night. Yeah. And it's kind of funny <laughs> because it's like you would think this isn't you always do this or you always do that. But I've found that people, you know, can have. I can have two different couples that I'm working with. And with one of the couples, like they're like, well, you know, we refinanced our student loans and they're not at a really high interest rate. And like, we're just going to pay what we pay on them. And every once in a while, we'll throw some extra money at them. So that could be one couple. And I could have another couple that I work with where they're just like, you know what? I hate having student loans hanging over my head and I hate not having anything to like weigh against them because you don't really own an asset that is you know, kind of canceling out your student loan as you would if you had a house or a car. Um, So there's kind of the factor of exactly the sleep at night factor. Like, are your student loans bugging you enough where you would rather just clear them out? Because at three to 4%, you can probably get something better than three to 4% investing. So if you were going for like the um, kind of the CPA's answer, they would say like, of course you invest because you'll probably make seven to nine percent. But I really go from the, you know, how how is it making your heart feel? <laughs> yeah, because personal finance, the reason why it's personal finance is because it's personal. Exactly, exactly. Right. So if your student loans really bug you, I give you permission to max out your match and then maybe to max out your 401k contribution because, you know, you might be getting a tax break there and then to throw money at your student loans if they're bugging you. Now, what if this, let's take this question and just say, instead of it being three and 4%, let's say he had some private loans in there and the percentage rate was anywhere between seven to 10%. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a case where it gets a lot closer on kind of what you could expect from investing versus what it would take to kind of pay those off. Um, in that case, you know, if you had federal loans and you had private loans, you could look at, okay, well, maybe I'll throw extra money towards the private loans, but pay the minimums on my federal loans while also putting some money towards investing. Um, So it doesn't necessarily have to be an all or nothing uh, type of deal. I mean, when you kind of go up a level from that, the more money that you can throw at everything, the more money is going to trickle down into being able to go towards these different goals. So if right now you've got $10,000 to work with, but you can kind of carve out another 10000 by, you know, not buying a really expensive trampoline for your kid 
or uh, <laughs> not buying, uh, you know, something else that you don't really need. If you can increase all of that, then you might just be able to like throw the same amount of money at your student loans, but throw more at retirement. You know, this, this is a really good question because that's the situation that me and my wife were in. Um, although we had our federal loans between three and 4%, we also had private loans that were in the seven to 10% range. And we had this conundrum of, well, should we invest or should we pay off our student loans? And I'm more risk averse than my wife, um, or at least debt averse than my wife. So she just could not, it just bothered her on a daily basis, having so much in loan debt. Um, so we, we took a balanced approach. Like you said, we maximized, um, our 401k, we maximized our IRA, IRAs, and then we took a, um, a very, um, strategic approach to just paying down the highest interest first. And then now we're working on our federal amount, which is three and 4%, but we're still investing also. Um, right. And I think, uh, you know, we did a, a review of ours. We're, we're not doing, we're not doing uh, too bad. I mean, we're doing pretty good in terms of our, you know, we're using index funds. Um, so we're just kind of mirroring the, the stock market. So we went down with the lows earlier in the year, but it looks like the market is doing really good right now. So we're doing pretty good right now. Yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly where you guys are doing both. It's not really an either or type of thing. You know, you've kind of um, essentially kept your lifestyle low. So that you can, you know, throw money at these <laughs> things that you want to kind of clear up and um, be able to kind of get off on a good foot. So that's, I'd encourage people to look at this question, but also see if you need to go a level up and see if there's, you know, more money that you can kind of throw at everything. Rice and beans, <laughs> beans and rice. <laughs> and bananas. And, ba- and bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Those are always cheap too. <laughs> Now, on the second part of his question, he says, and I'm assuming he's got kids, he says, what's the maximum amount I can invest in a 529 account per year for my kids? Yeah, and that's a good question, too, on how much you can invest in a 529 plan per year. This one gets a little bit fuzzy because the IRS always specifies limits for retirement accounts. So each year, the IRS says how much money you can put into a Roth IRA, a traditional IRA how much money somebody can put into a 401k. But actually, the IRS doesn't specify a limit for 529 plans in particular. Um, What you do want to keep in mind is that there is an annual gift tax exclusion limit, which sounds funny, but there's... Using all these big words. I know. There's an annual... So it's called (laughs) annual gift tax exclusion limit. And it's the amount that the IRS says that you, an individual, can give to somebody else before you start taking kind of your lifetime gift money. Um, So each year, that's $14,000 per person. And this changes every year. So this is kind of the current year. Um, But if you're married, then essentially each person can give $14,000 to each individual. So, you know, if you are married and then you have two kids, um, you can essentially put $28,000 into each child's 529 plan. Okay. Um, There are a couple of workarounds on this too. So this really depends on um, each state has a 529 plan for that state. Some of them give like a credit back. So for example, if, um, if you live in a state where there's a state income tax, you would want to research your state's 401k, 401k, 529 plan first. All of these acronyms with all of these numbers, right? It's alphabet soup. Exactly. So you would want to research your state's 529 first to see if there's some sort of like state, you know, credit that you get back. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you lived in a state like Texas, where I am, we have super high property tax rates, but we don't have any sort of state income tax. So here in Texas, I could invest into my state's 529 plan, or I could invest in any of the other states' 529 plans. It doesn't really matter. Uh, Okay. So at that point, I would just kind of want to see which one is the best 529 plan out there that I could stick my money into. Um, And there's a really good website that I'm a fan of called savingforcollege.com. Okay. It has so much information about 
um, calculators on kind of rating the different 529 plans. And I really like that they keep it pretty unbiased. Um, yeah, right on the front page, it says the top 10 529 plans, actually. Yeah. And I mean, they're not sitting there like accepting, you know, huge amounts of money to to say that, you know, this really expensive 529 plan is better. So I think that's a really good educational tool and educational website. Now, what happens um, now? 529s are for obviously secondary or for college and um, undergraduate school and obviously professional school. What happens when you have your kid, he gets up to the age of 17, 18, he's like, mom, dad, I'm not going to to college. Like what happens with all that money that you've accrued? Um, So if the kid goes to college, but gets a scholarship, then you actually can pull out money, like the same amount that that kid took in scholarship money. So that's the good news. Um, If your child says, you know, I'm going to go be an actor in Hollywood and I don't need a degree to do that. um, I'm going to open up a wilderness store like on the Cosby show. (laughs) (laughs) If your kid wants to open up a wilderness store instead of going to college, you can, if there's somebody else in the family that is going to want to go to college, you can transfer that money um, to that person without any kind of tax penalty or anything like that. So, <laughs> so you, you got to find somebody else who's going to college. Well, if little brother does want to go to college, but this person does not, then you can transfer it. Otherwise, you just take the money out. And essentially, if it's not used for college, you're going to have to pay taxes on the gain on the 529 plan. So like if you put $10,000 in there, fortunately, you're not going to have to pay taxes on the 10000 that you put in there, but you are going to have to pay taxes on the gain that you've had in the 529 plan. All right. Well, we're going to move from Massachusetts to uh, the Midwest, uh, to the Great Plains, to the state of Kansas. Um, Dr. Chris has a three-part question. He's getting a little uh, greedy. Um, <laughs> since, it's, since it's the first show, I'll let him get away with it. Um, so his first question is, why are so many people pushing index funds over individual stocks? Yeah. And I think that's a really great question about index funds versus individual stocks. Um, I've written a couple of articles on this particular, um, topic. So there's one that I really like. It's called seven deadly sins of investing. And apparently everybody else liked it too, because they shared it all. And I'll, I'll (laughs) link to that in the show notes. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like that kind of um, outlined that, you know, there is a difference between having a fully diversified index fund. So if you're buying an index fund, you know, like if you buy the S&P 500, you're buying 500 stocks, you know, you're buying like the entire market. Um, So that means if the technology sector doesn't do well, you still have the financial sector, you still have like all of the other sectors in the stock market. Um, if you're just doing an individual stock, not only are you relying on that sector doing well, but you're relying on that company doing well and on the stockholders' reactions to news from that company. So, I mean, there's a lot more variables in having an individual stock versus, you know, like a group or a pool of stocks. Um With that being said, I know that there are plenty of people out there that like kind of the thrill of having a couple of individual stocks. So I'm not going to sit there and try to talk people out of like, oh, no, you cannot hold any individual stocks. But as a good rule of thumb, I tell them, like, take your total invested amount, multiply it by about 5%. And that is how much that you should have in what I call your stock play account, where you can just go hog wild. You can buy whatever you want in there (laughs) because... If every single thing in there goes bankrupt and goes to zero dollars, you only took 5% of your portfolio and kind of played around with it. And also you should be, you should be willing to spend a lot of time researching these individual stocks also, right? Yeah. I mean, if you, so kind of what I put in the article is if you are a CFA and you follow markets for a living, then you can, you know, essentially do market timing, kind of figure out what individual stocks that you should be buying. But if you are a physician, um, if you're a physician and you're a CFA, like you should, you know, call in right now and like interrupt this show (laughs) and be like, I am a chartered financial analyst and a physician. Um, But most likely, you know, you don't have all of the education on what criteria to look for 
when you're looking at an individual stock, you know, and you're kind of taking a risk and just having, you know, even if you have 10 individual stocks, a lot of times what I see is that somebody really liked technology. So they might have Google, Apple, Facebook, um, (laughs) exactly. But like in whole, their 10 stock portfolio is very heavily overweighted in whatever it is that they work in or whatever it is that they think is a good buy for the future. So it's not really, you know, weighing each other out on if technology suddenly crashes and the boring companies like Johnson and Johnson are still doing well. Right. And if you're investing in the S&P 500, there's a pretty good chance that you already have a small amount invested in those big tech companies anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I like to kind of do, um, it's like an x-ray on portfolios where we kind of put everything in and then it kind of shows like how much crossover there is. And that's always kind of funny because I see a lot of times that people will do like a really well diversified, you know, fund that contains stocks and bonds in it. And then they throw in like a real estate fund, a small cap fund and like five individual stocks. And it's like, they just took that nicely diversified, like a piece of artwork. And it's like, they just like, Threw spray paint all over it, you know. <laughs> You're just like, why? Why would you do that? Come on, Katie. It's eclectic now. Come on, now. yeah, exactly. Now it's funky, <laughs> right? Right. So basically, if you don't have the time to really be focusing on individual stocks, or if you're not willing to to consider it play money, and there's a high chance that you may lose your money, index funds are probably the best bet for you. Right. Exactly. Okay. And not only index okay. funds, but you want to have some S&P 500 and then you want something that is invested into bonds or cash because even if you just have the S&P 500, it's still 100% invested into stocks. Now, I remember reading somewhere that there is a study or a bunch of studies that have come out recently that have shown that actively managed funds, um, mutual funds and so forth, actually don't perform as well as passively managed funds, which the majority of index funds are. Is that true? I would say there's so many mutual funds out there. I mean, when I log into the backend portal for my um, investment management tool, I think there's like 10,000 something. And that is just on that one platform as far as like mutual funds that you could actually pick. So, you know, I would say in general, um, if you're buying a mutual fund, it's kind of the same deal with the variable annuities that we talked about. You kind of have to do your research. So there are sectors where it might make sense to have a managed fund. So for example, in large cap, that's kind of the large companies, a lot of times you're better off with an index. Um, A large cap value manager is not going to do that much different from a large cap value index fund normally. But if you get into a sector that's more specialized, like international or like small cap stocks, um, you know, there's... A whole world of research that can be done on which companies to put into a small cap stock fund where, you know, it might make sense for, for somebody to get a managed fund versus just doing an index. Got you. That was my very, well, it depends answer. Do you like that? Yeah, I'll take it. I like it. I like <laughs> it. And everybody else is just going to have to accept it. Hey, right. <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> Well, Chris, his next question, and this is right up our alley because I think we both um, are big on this, but his question is, what are your thoughts on robo-advisors, you know, like the Betterments, the wealth fronts, um, I forget what else is out there, versus doing the investing on your own? Yeah, I feel like with the, um, with the robo-advisors, really the biggest advantage that they bring to the table is... Um, is kind of discipline. I mean, essentially, if you choose to go through a robo-advisor, then they're going to assign you into an asset allocation. So an asset allocation is a balance of stocks versus bonds and cash. So they're going to pick an asset allocation for you, and they're going to pick which funds or ETFs go into that asset allocation. And it's kind of just taking all of those decisions. Some of them can be big and some of them can be real small, but, you know, if people aren't paying attention to them and if they're not rebalancing their portfolio, you know, you kind of have to have a talk with yourself. Like, you know, (laughs) am I somebody who would rather go with the easy button 
on my investing and have somebody else kind of rebalancing it and putting my investments to work in a in an asset allocation? Or do I want to spend the time not only researching it at the beginning, but also there's maintenance that you need to do. You know, if stocks do really well one year and bonds do really poorly, you would want to rebalance, which is, um, you know, to put it back into the same balance that you started with, with stocks and bonds. And and look, not, this show is not being um, sponsored by any robo-advisor, but I, I think the fees from investing on your own versus the robo-advisors is not a big difference at all, right? It's usually not a huge difference. Um, you know, like, I can't remember exactly what Betterment charges. I think it's maybe like 0.25. Like 0.3? Yeah, point, oh, yeah, 0.25 or 0.3%. Right. So, I mean, if it makes sense for you to to put like a chunk of money in there and they kind of do the work on, you know, your risk analysis and figuring out how much to put in stocks versus bonds. If it saves you from yourself, then it is worth the 0.3%. If that keeps you from doing crazy stuff with your money, then that might be a really good place to put it. So how many phone calls did you get when the Brexit you know, when the market tumbled after the Brexit, did you have to talk some people off the ledge? You know, what's funny is that I thought I would get calls, but I think just from working with the people that I work with and kind of taking that educational approach to financial planning, um, I literally did not get one single phone call. I happened to have a client appointment right around the same time that all of that was happening. And she kind of gave me like a whole like, hey, is my money still okay? And I was like, well, let me explain to you what's going on. And that was it. But she did not pick up the phone and call in a panic that day. Um, so I felt really like relieved <laughs> because at a wealth management firm that I used to be at, I probably would have been yelled at by at least 10 clients over that couple of days that um, all of the uncertainty was going on. Yeah. And then the next weekend, the market was back up again, if not better. Right. I mean, it, the... I feel like the news gets us stuff really quickly, but then it also kind of creates sometimes a spiral of worry that then makes it whatever it is even worse (laughs) because people get information so quickly. Right. So it, you know, robo advisors right now have been out. What, what do we say about four or five years now, maybe a little bit longer. Um, Do you think it's still too short or not enough time to really say that they are a viable option to investing on your own or, Um, is that short-sighted of me? Well, I mean, it's the same thing as anything else. You kind of have to do your research. So, you know, you still need to know, okay, well, I'm getting put into an asset allocation. Like, what is that asset allocation? You know, are they putting me in 100% stocks and saying that that's a good asset allocation? Because it might not be. Um, And knowing kind of that robo-advisor's approach and history and what the underlying Um, things are that it's using. Like, I think all of those should kind of go into the research that you're doing if you're deciding whether to, you know, do it yourself, use a robo-advisor, use an actual financial planner um, to manage your money. Okay. Well, Chris's last question um, is, I guess, along the alternative investments realm. His question is, what do you think about peer-to-peer lending? And can you give us a little bit of a, an education on what exactly peer-to-peer lending is? Yeah. Um, peer-to-peer lending is, um, you know, the big companies that are out there are the ones like Lending Club, um, Prosper. It essentially is connecting people that want to borrow money with people that don't mind giving up money <laughs> to let them borrow it. So um, I kind of joke that peer-to-peer lending is like, if your Uncle Larry called you up and said like, hey, can I have $30,000? I'm good for it. (laughs) (laughs) That is essentially peer-to-peer lending, but it's a little bit more technology enabled and, you know, a little bit more complicated than that. Um, But at the end of the day, that's kind of what you're doing. Like essentially you are loaning money into a platform and at the other end of it, people are borrowing money um, from that platform. Now, when you say people, are we talking about just regular Joe Schmoes or are we talking about like big, are you making big lending um, or big loans to big companies or? Yeah. So for the most part, um, like Lending Club is their market is individuals and loaning money to individuals. And a lot of times um, that could be like if somebody has credit card debt and it's at 19%, 
but they still have a decent credit score, they might go to a company like Lending Club and they might be able to refinance that credit card debt for something like 7 or 8% versus the 19% that they're paying right now. Oh, uh, and so you're contributing to financing that loan basically. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And then your is it your results are going to be based off of obviously if that person can pay or not and I'm assuming the higher the risk of the of the person who you're giving a loan to, the higher to return also if they pay it all back? Yeah. And I mean, usually if you invest in peer-to-peer lending, you're usually making like loans to a bunch of different people. Um, You're usually not like picking like this particular person that you are loaning it to, but some of them might have that where you can kind of like choose your borrower. Um, You know, this versus like something like uh, a bond, or like a treasury note. Um, Essentially, I would think of this along the lines of a stock versus along the lines of like bond or cash. Mm, Um, Because if you have like a bond, for example, Sounds riskier. Yeah, for example, even a corporate bond, a corporate bond would be backed by a company. And if the company goes bankrupt, they actually have to pay back their bonds before they pay out anything to the stockholders. Um, as opposed to with the peer-to-peer lending, like there's no insurance whatsoever on a peer-to-peer loan. I mean, essentially, if that person or if a pool of people don't pay back or they default on it, then the risk is, that's it. then that's it. Like you just don't and get your done. money back. Um, so I kind of put that into the realm of like, it might not be bad to have in your portfolio, but don't put it as a majority of your portfolio. Take how much you have invested, multiply it by 5%. <laughs> that is your money that you could put in peer-to-peer lending or in um, you know crazy real estate things that you don't really understand what you're getting into or in um, individual stocks. So that's kind of so this, this this fits into the play category, basically. Um, if you do really well, great. If you lose money, don't be crying because it should only be about less than 5% of your allocation. Yeah, exactly. I would put it more in like, I would not base a big portfolio or a big chunk of your portfolio in peer-to-peer lending just because it's it's pretty new. It hasn't been around all that much and there's not really like any kind of backing on it. Um as opposed to like, okay, if Uncle Larry calls you up and he says like, I want to buy a car, <laughs> I keep going back to Uncle Larry. I'll pay you back on Tuesday. If he says, I want to buy a car, but I'm going to put the car title in your name so that if I ever default on it, like you can come take the car. That's one thing. But the peer-to-peer lending is an unsecured loan, which means like they're not signing over anything if they default on that loan. So if somebody defaults on that loan, there's no option to like go get the car from them or, you know, like foreclose on the house. It's just essentially like they didn't pay it. The company is probably going to put some effort into trying to collect that payment. But if they don't, you're kind of out the money. So it looks like um, in terms of peer-to-peer lending, would you put that in the same um, category as annuities or would you just say basically those are completely separate um, although it should be a small percentage, you don't kind of equate the two. Well, so an annuity is more, um, it, people buy an annuity more for the tax umbrella part of it. Oh yeah, that is true. Yeah. yeah. So, and then peer-to-peer lending, I would say is kind of a level below that. If you're deciding whether to do like an index mutual fund or an individual stock or, um, a robo advisor where they're kind of allocating your money out or peer to peer lending, like that's kind of in the same category as, as those options. Hmm, okay. Well, I think, uh, we're done with all the questions right now. And, um, I think for our first Q and a session, that went really good. What do you think? I think so too. I think those were great questions and I'm glad I got a chance to kind of address some of them. And I hope nobody is, uh, too grumpy at me for you know throwing <laughs> throwing my very come on Katie it's all love throwing it's all my love. very opinionated opinion out there in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we'll check in the comments section in a couple of days when it gets released. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let, let me give you an opportunity to tell everybody about who you are, where you're at, where they can find you, and how they can get in contact with you. Please take a moment. Yeah, so my website. Um, I mentioned a couple of articles on there, and you can get to the website by going to yrlplanning.com. And you get to the blog by going to yrlplanning.com slash blog. 
If you want to type the whole thing out, you can also go to yourrichestlifeplanning.com. But, you know, that's like 30. Oh, you bought both domains? Yeah, I did. I totally did. I was like, hey, in case Smart someone move. doesn't want to type out the 35, you know, letters that go along with the full name. So, yeah, yrlplanning.com is my website. yrlplanning.com slash blog is where I have quite a few educational articles um, and you can kind of read up on who I am and what I believe there. And you're still taking clients, obviously. Yeah, I am still taking clients. Um, I am having to space people out a little bit more at this point. I always tell new clients that I want to make sure that they get a really good experience when they're going through this. Because a lot of times the clients that I'm working with in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, this is the first time they've really worked with a financial planner that does comprehensive financial planning um, they may have worked with a financial advisor before. They may have had somebody managing investments. They may have been sold a couple of products. But this is usually the first time that they're kind of rolling up their sleeves and even like looking at all of this different information and gathering the information. So I was going to want to make sure that people have a really good experience with doing that and that they're not one of like seven people that I'm attempting to <laughs> bring on and right. work at at the same Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're doing that. It's a great problem to have where you're having so many more clients that you have to space them out and you're still giving them the individual um, uh, attention that they need. So right. that's great. That's a really good thing. Yep. Very good thing. Well, Katie, th- you are officially the first person to be on the show twice. So All right. Uh, you are going on the Hall of Fame. It's good to get to the point where I'm at that may have to make you a co-host. So, <laughs> Hey, that sounds like fun. <laughs> it would be fun, right? So um, I just want to say thank you very much for spending time to answer this question or these questions. This is a different format. Um, I think um, based off of episode four, you were extremely popular and uh, so many people had questions and I brought it down to three um, specific people who had some questions. But hey, if you're open to it, maybe we can do it again. Yeah. And I mean, like these people kind of, you know, like won the question lotteries. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Especially greedy Chris in Kansas. <laughs> oh, but he just, you know, he or she just had a lot of questions to ask. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Episode 11 is officially done. I tried to change things up on you all. And I'm really interested to know your thoughts on this past episode, at least the style of the episode. Did you like the Q&A style? If you have more questions about finances, if you have more questions even about lifestyle, go ahead and send me um, feedback. Send me your questions to Twitter, Facebook, or even email. So with Twitter, you can hit me at docsotb. That's D-O-C-S-O-T-B. Facebook, I have a Facebook page, Docs Outside the Box. And then always with email, it's docsotb at gmail.com. And before we end the show, always remember one thing, to always live outside the box. Outside the box.